Welcome to this Forthright Radio for March 10th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Lee Goodmark, who is the Marjorie Cook Professor of Law at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law, where she co-directs the Clinical Law Program, teaches family law, gender and the law, and gender violence and the law, and directs the Gender Violence Clinic, providing direct representation in matters involving intimate partner abuse, sexual assault, trafficking, and other forms of gender violence. Her most recent book is Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. Anti-violence advocates have worked to make the legal system more responsive to gender-based violence, but greater state intervention in cases of intimate partner violence, rape, sexual assault, and trafficking has led to the arrest, prosecution, conviction, and incarceration of victims. Professor Goodmark argues that only dismantling the system will bring that punishment to an end. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Lee Goodmark. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Lee, your latest book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors and the Promise of Abolition Feminism, marks an evolution in your thinking about the subject. Many of us would like to believe that progress has been made in protecting those who have been the survivors of gender-based violence through hard work and hard-fought campaigns by anti-rape and battered women movements for legislative actions such as the Violence Against Women Act and mandatory arrest laws. But your research indicates that Although well-intentioned, laws meant to support women can and do actually lead to their incarceration. For the past 10 years, you and your students at the University of Maryland Carey Law Gender Violence Clinic have provided direct representation to survivors who have been incarcerated. Share with our listeners a bit about your work and some of the ways in which your approach has changed since you began. I started doing this work almost 30 years ago now, and as a young lawyer coming into the anti-violence field, was very strongly affected by the work that had been done by the anti-violence movement to criminalize intimate partner violence. I believed that criminalization was the appropriate response to intimate partner violence, that men, and at the time we were only talking about men, who committed acts of violence were monsters. They were not redeemable, and the only way to deal with them was to lock them away. And as a young lawyer working with my clients was quickly disabused of that notion. My clients said, we aren't interested in criminalization. We want our partners with us. We need them for economic support. We need them for parenting support. We love them. Criminalization is not the answer for us. And at the same time, as an academic, started to do research about the impact of criminalization. And in my second book, Decriminalizing Domestic Violence, laid out the case for why criminalization was not decreasing or deterring intimate partner violence, was actually exacerbating many of the correlates of that violence, and was having consequences that we cannot describe as unintended anymore because we've known about them for the last 40 years on communities of color and on criminalized survivors particularly. In the clinic, we represent survivors of intimate partner violence, rape, 
trafficking and other forms of gender-based violence who are incarcerated for crimes related to their own victimization. And what we have found over that time is that there are very few folks who are incarcerated who have not suffered some kind of trauma and many of whom who have been hurt by the same laws that in theory were meant to help them. So clients of ours were arrested under mandatory arrest laws and clients of ours were convicted notwithstanding battered woman syndrome defenses and other kinds of defenses meant to explain why they felt the need to take action in self-defense. We have clients who have been convicted of crimes committed under duress or through the coercion of their abusive partners. And what most folks don't recognize is how much the increase in women's incarceration has been driven by the incarceration of survivors of violence and just how destructive incarceration can be for folks who've already experienced trauma. Your approach is very much one of analyzing the entire criminal justice system, focusing on women who are survivors of gender-based violence. But we are living in an era where any attempt at analyzing any problems in society systemically is experiencing an extreme backlash by very well-organized, very well-funded interstate organizations that are using politics and legislation to prevent even discussion or teaching about systemic approaches. I wonder if you have any experience with that kind of backlash or what your comments might be about dealing with that. We have largely flown under the radar in my clinic, and Maryland is a fairly progressive state. So we have not dealt with the kinds of incursions on our work that you would see, for example, in Florida or in other places that are attacking critical race theory and attacking the structural analysis of violence that has to include anti-racism work and work around substance abuse and mental health and anti-poverty work and all of those correlates that we know are part of intimate partner violence. It's impossible to talk about the experiences of criminalized survivors without talking about the fact that women of color and especially Black women and Native women in some places are disproportionately represented among the pool of people who are criminalized for acts related to their own survival. You know, very quick example in Connecticut where they have struggled for years with their mandatory arrest law and done various things to try to mitigate its harms. There's a new study that shows that about half of the women arrested under the mandatory arrest laws in Connecticut are Black and Latina women, while those women make up only about a quarter of the population. Those disparities exist in arrests, in prosecution, in incarceration. The criminal legal system is riddled with racism. But so far, we've been pretty lucky in not drawing anyone's fire on that score. I will say that anytime that you try to talk about incarcerated people, you're guaranteed to draw some negative attention based around the idea that people must be incarcerated for things that they deserve to be incarcerated for. So that's always been part of the conversation that we've had here. I'm glad you brought up this mandatory arrest law. First of all, what is that? What was it originally intended as? And 
what has it played out as? In the late 60s and early 70s, the police training manuals of the time told police officers who were responding to incidents of intimate partner violence not to make arrests. And that sounds like urban legend, but in fact, it's true. The manual said, tell the guy, and again, at that time, it was always a guy and it was always a husband, to take a walk around the block, but don't arrest him because it's a private family matter. When the anti-violence movement started to advocate for policy changes, one of the first things that it looked at was the failure of police to intervene in cases involving intimate partner violence, the failure to treat domestic violence as a crime just like any other crime. And one of the ways that the movement saw to try to mitigate that problem was something called mandatory arrest. Mandatory arrest laws require police to make an arrest anytime they have probable cause to do so in a case involving domestic violence. And so it's meant to deprive police of the discretion to say, take a walk around the block or to ask, do you really want to pursue charges against your partner? Instead, police are required to make an arrest. And those laws began in the late 70s, 1979. Oregon passes the first mandatory arrest law, but they're really bolstered in 1984 by studies that suggested that arrest would deter recidivist violence. The authors of those studies said you've got to replicate the studies before you adopt this as policy. Jurisdictions didn't listen. As it turned out, the results weren't replicated. The results showed that arrest has impacts on recidivist violence that range from modestly helpful to nothing at all to modestly harmful, that it actually could spur further violence. But by then, jurisdictions across the country had adopted these policies, and early on, the Violence Against Women Act also encouraged jurisdictions to adopt these policies. Not surprisingly, after the inception of mandatory arrest policies, arrests in cases involving intimate partner violence went up. But they went up for one group more than anyone else, and that was women. Not because, the research shows, women had all of a sudden become more violent, but because of the way that police were implementing those policies. And as I've already mentioned, didn't just go up for women, but particularly went up for women of color. Yes, you document in your book that incarceration rates have gone up by 60% for men, but 400% in California for women, and in Kenosha, Wisconsin, 12 times So those are actually the mandatory arrest numbers. Those Ah. are the arrest figures from the early 80s after the inception of mandatory arrest policies. This isn't something that you particularly address in your book, but I think it needs to be included in our discussion. And that is that the promulgation of prisons and jails since the late 70s, early 80s is just unbelievable. I don't have in front of me the statistics, but they have become an important part of many locales economic structures particularly in rural areas and particularly with the deindustrialization of the United States a lot of the formerly industrial centers now have prisons And because part of your work is considering abolition of prisons have you given thought to the economic aspects of this I absolutely have And all of that is tied to gender violence in kind of really interesting ways. So starting with deindustrialization, one of the things that's happened in the United States, of course, is that we've lost high-paying blue-collar jobs. And why that matters for intimate partner violence is that male under and unemployment is one of the most significant correlates of intimate partner violence. So 
having lost those jobs, there have been not great replacements for people who've lost the opportunity to do work that doesn't require a college degree, doesn't require advanced education, and provides a living wage. That's absolutely tied to the perpetration of intimate partner violence. In terms of the growth of the carceral state, What we see there is something that law professor Jonathan Simon has called governing through crime, or the idea that we take social problems and we turn them into criminal problems and then put money into the criminal legal system to warehouse people so that we don't actually have to solve the problems in any real way. That's true of a number of different social problems. It's absolutely true of intimate partner violence. And so you see funds being shifted out of communities where it could be used to address violence and into communities to build up the carceral system. So we're happy to put money into prisons, but we're not happy to put money into actually solving the problem, getting at some of the correlates of the problem. And of course, that only makes violence worse because violence is highly correlated with the experience of trauma and with the witnessing of trauma. And so we take people out of their communities because they've committed acts of violence against their partners. We send them into prisons, which are trauma-inducing institutions. We don't provide them with any real services. We don't do anything to help them deal with the issues that brought them to the use of violence in the first place. And then for most people, we release them back into communities that are distressed, that lack resources, that are unstable. And all of those things are highly correlated with the perpetration of violence. So you have people who now have a much harder time getting a job because they've been incarcerated. That's associated with violence. You have people who've experienced more trauma that they haven't processed, and that's associated with violence. And you send them into unstable communities, and that's associated with violence. The other piece of this, of course, is that every time you build a prison, you have to fill it. And what we've seen over time is that as more prison facilities became available, more people were needed to fill them to drive that economy. And as you try to close prisons, you see the opposition of local communities who are going to lose a huge part of their economic base. So there have to be people to send into these prisons. And the way that we do that is by adding new crimes that we would not have charged before or holding people for longer periods of time, adding draconian sentences. And in the context of women, making the argument that, no, 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 these are gender responsive or trauma-informed prisons. And in fact, they're going to help. For gender-responsive prisons, sometimes what that means is we offer cosmetology. Sometimes what that means is we allow you to be incarcerated with your child, but it doesn't mean dealing with any of the reasons why people come into the system in the first instance. And it doesn't deal with the trauma that people experience because prisons are inherently trauma-inducing institutions. So the idea that you can create a trauma-informed prison that is somehow going to alleviate the trauma that you are inflicting on somebody just by having them in that system is ridiculous. We are speaking with Lee Goodmark about her book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. Let's take some of the examples you use in your book based on your work in your clinic of women who have experienced gender-based violence and then get sucked into the criminal system. You choose which one you'd like to share with us. I can talk about a client of ours named Irena Pretty. And I should say, in case anyone's concerned about it, all of the clients that I write about in the book, I write about with their explicit permission. I would not have written about clients without having made sure that they were invested in it. Ms. Pretty was 18 and she was dating a man who was abusive. She had been assaulted by her boss and she told her boyfriend about it. And he decided that in retaliation, he wanted to rob the store where she worked. He knew he couldn't get in by himself, so he told her that she was going to come with him and she was going to get him in. Wasn't something that she wanted to do. 
but she knew that she would face the consequences if she didn't. So she went with him to the store and she got their entrance into the store and everything escalated at that point in ways that she had not expected. She had not expected that her boyfriend was going to hold the store owner and another person at gunpoint. He then told her to tie everyone up, something that she had not known that she was going to be asked to do. So she did that. And as she did it, she tried to assure the people that he's not going to do anything. It's just a robbery. It'll be okay. And as soon as she could, she ran away. And as she was running away, she heard gunshots. And it turned out that her boyfriend had killed the store owner and hurt the other person who was there. Ms. Pretty was charged with first-degree felony murder. Felony murder is used to hold someone responsible for a killing that occurs in the context of the commission of a felony. Whether you have touched the instrument or not, whether you are responsible for their death or not, whether you've done anything to directly cause their death or not. And she was sentenced to life in prison. And Ms. Pretty served 42 years in prison. At the time that we were representing her, she was the longest serving person in the Maryland women's system. She contracted COVID during that time. She was removed from the institution. We had no idea where she was. Her family had no idea where she was. She was up for parole six separate times and the last two times recommended for parole. But in Maryland at that time, the governor had to approve of a parole for a lifer as well, and he wouldn't do that. And finally, Ms. Pretty was released several years ago after, again, 42 years of incarceration because of a constitutional infirmity in the plea that she originally took at age 18. Ms. Pretty is an example of how criminalized survivors can be brought into the criminal legal system as a result of being forced or coerced into crimes by their partners. We also represent a number of people who have the more traditional story of fighting back against abusive partners and being denied the ability to claim self-defense. And we represent a number of folks who were convicted of sex trafficking in the federal system for acts that occurred while they themselves were being trafficked. Let's get into some of that because trafficking is big news the last few years with the Elaine Maxwell story, the recent college thing in New York. These are stories that are just hard to believe for the average person. And when you're talking about this, would you also begin to talk about how we tend to project onto victims, survivors, well, if I were in that situation, I would just leave and and that sort of thing. Explain how that is not useful in analyzing these things. Trafficking is terrible. And I don't want anyone to hear me say that it's not. But the way that federal prosecutors have used their power in these cases is deeply problematic in that they have regularly charged people who have been trafficked with crimes related to their own trafficking. So, for example, in the book, I talk about a client who had been trafficked by multiple people throughout the course of her life. The judge at her sentencing acknowledged that she had been a victim all her life. She met a young woman. She did not know the young woman's age, and they became friends. They went to a party together, and they had a safe word. So my client said to the young woman, if you feel unsafe at any time. You just say this word. We will leave. We'll be out the door. It got late. My client said, I am going to leave now. I've kind of had enough for tonight. Are you good? The young woman said, I'm fine. I would like to stay. And she did stay and later was trafficked by some of the men who were at that party that my client had taken her to. Federal prosecutors said, well, she's responsible for grooming this child because it turned out that the young woman was under the age of 18, which my client did not know. And introducing her to the people who would traffic her, she is part of the trafficking ring. And even though the victim said repeatedly, 
She didn't know that I was being trafficked. She didn't introduce me for the purpose of trafficking and disclaimed that my client had any responsibility for any of this. My client was convicted of a crime of sex trafficking a minor, which carries with it a requirement that she register as a sex offender, depending upon what state she lives in, for a term that could be as long as the rest of her life. So in that case, there isn't a leaving to be done because she didn't do anything. In other cases of victims of trafficking who are convicted of crimes related to their own trafficking, the idea that they could leave is kind of ridiculous. And it's the same thing that we hear around intimate partner violence. So, And there's overlap, actually, between those two things. In the book, I also tell the story of a client who was being trafficked by her intimate partner, along with some young women that he recruited. And the abuse that she was enduring at that time was very severe. He had threatened not only her, but had threatened her family, and he knew where her family lived. And so she made the best of this horrible situation and tried to help the girls that he brought into traffic as best she could. She tried to help them go home. She encouraged them regularly to go home. She tried to get them jobs other places. And she tried to make life as easy on them as possible. They witnessed their trafficker breaking her leg. They witnessed her being abused. And so everyone knew that she couldn't leave. That was not an option for her. And when all of the girls finally did escape, he then trafficked her. And that was how she got arrested. He trafficked her to a police officer. And that was the only way that that whole incident was going to end for her because she didn't have the ability to leave. So it's very easy from the outside to look at a situation like that and say, well, she could have walked away at any time. But our clients who've been victims of trafficking, our clients who've been victims of intimate partner violence often don't have any resources, don't have other places to live, have been isolated from sources of support, don't have the capacity to go out and get paying work in the immediate way that they would need to to be able to get the rent on an apartment and in the first month's deposit on an apartment. They have children who they're taking care of. There's so many reasons why people can't just leave relationships. And it also assumes that leaving makes you safer, when in fact, we have 40 years of research and thought about how separation-based violence is a very real phenomenon and how leaving doesn't always make you safer. And in fact, in the case of Nikki Adamondo, who was a woman who I write about in the book, who fought back against her abusive partner as in, and is serving a sentence in the New York prison, she addressed this directly and said, we're too afraid to leave and we're too afraid to stay. We don't have real choices. And then we end up where I am. This brings up the role of prosecutors. Would you go into in detail in your book? You've already mentioned that's damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for many of these survivors of gender-based violence. But talk about the many ways in which the role of the prosecutor forces the survivors into carceral situations. And the one you just talked about is perhaps the one most of us will think about. But there's other motives on the part of prosecutors that make them feel good about what they're doing when really what they're doing is just incarcerating women. It is not exaggeration to say that prosecutors are the most powerful people in the criminal legal system, even more so than judges. Prosecutors decide who's going to get charged, what crime they're going to get charged with, whether they're going to offer a plea bargain, whether they're going to fight against bail, 
the charging decision can sometimes make sure that somebody is serving a time for a crime with a long mandatory minimum sentence. In the charging decision, when you charge someone with a crime, carrying a long mandatory minimum sentence can compel them to plead, get to decide who's going to be subpoenaed and what they're going to be subpoenaed to testify to. Just it goes on and on and on. So the power that prosecutors have in the system is just enormous. And so is the discretion that they wield. It is very hard to hold a prosecutor accountable for any choice that they make in the course of a prosecution because they are immune from prosecution. They're immune from lawsuit for choices that relate directly to the way that they choose to work in a particular case. And so when all of that comes together, what happens is that you have prosecutors who are very able to carry out whatever their agenda might be in terms of how they address intimate partner violence and other forms of gender-based violence. So on the one hand, in terms of criminalized survivors who are brought into the system as witnesses, prosecutors get to decide, for example, if they're going to subpoena victims of violence to testify when victims of violence choose not to do that. If the victim of violence doesn't appear in court pursuant to the subpoena, can ask for and receive what's called a material witness warrant, which enables the prosecutor to have that person arrested and held until such time as they testify. And those material witness warrants, you don't have the rights that criminal defendants have. So there's no requirement that you be brought into court and have bail set or to be heard at any particular time. You're not entitled to counsel. There's no limitation in most states on how long you can be held. And in many places, you're held in the exact same place that you're that the person who has done something to you is being held. In the book, I talk about the experience of victims in Tennessee who were beaten because uh, correctional officers didn't recognize them as victims. They saw them just as anybody else in the jail. Or the case of Renata Singleton, who was incarcerated on a $100,000 bond as a material witness, a bond that she couldn't make, and then brought into court five days later in an orange jumpsuit shackled to everyone else, even though she was the victim of a crime. So that's one way that prosecutors can use their power. Prosecutors can also use that power because they think they're helping in some way. And so you see prosecutors pursue cases because they think they're saving people by getting them into services or by incarcerating them so that they can then look at their lives and look at their behavior. And so that savior mentality is particularly problematic in the context of trafficking, where you see prosecutors pursuing folks who are being trafficked and bringing them into the carceral system as a way of rescuing them without thinking about what it means to have an arrest record, what it means to experience the trauma of arrest, what it means to have a conviction record, and to not then give them any services on the back end to deal with any of that stuff. And then prosecutors bring cases because they think they can win. Even though the role of the prosecutor is supposed to be to seek justice, some prosecutors see themselves as meeting out punishment. And in fact, in Maryland, in a recent legislative hearing, we had the head prosecutor of one jurisdiction say, my job is to punish people. And so in cases involving incarcerated survivors or criminalized survivors, what you often see is that people admit what they've done. They believe that the system will hear them. They believe that the system will deal with them fairly. They don't minimize what they've done to protect themselves. And because those then become easy cases to win, prosecutors take those cases on. And prosecutors have a bit of a blind spot when it comes to criminalized survivors. They love to talk about being the voice of the victim and all the things that they do for victims. But as soon as somebody is labeled a criminal defendant, it is as though a switch flips for prosecutors and they can no longer see that person's victimization history. And so they explain it away in a hundred different ways. You weren't a victim. You were angry. You weren't a victim. You were jealous. You weren't a victim because you're a substance user. You weren't a victim because you have mental health issues. 
you weren't a victim because you're too strong to be a victim. You weren't a victim because you're too foul mouthed to be a victim. And it goes on and on and on. And of course, all of that is racialized too. And black women who are characterized as angry black women bear the brunt of that. You talk in this section of the age of the victim, I'm speaking under age, is often just utterly disregarded, especially if there is sex work involved. Expand on that a bit, please. Sure. So what the book does is start from the first place that criminalized survivors come into the criminal legal system, and that's as children. For girls and for trans and gender nonconforming youth, the system does them two disservices. It fails to confer on them any of the benefits of childhood, and it fails to confer on them any of the benefits of victimization. And you see that particularly in the cases of girls who are trafficked. Because when a girl has been involved in sex work, whether volitionally or against her will, She's no longer a girl, she's a woman, and she's no longer a victim because police and prosecutors both assume that she must be doing it of her own free will. Now, federal law says that anyone who is engaged in sex work under the age of 18 is by definition a victim of trafficking. But police and prosecutors often fail to see it the same way. And they say, well, she was responsible for this. She wanted to do it. She was engaged in the in the sex work. And therefore, we need to hold her responsible for these things that she's done. And again, particularly for Black girls who are often adultified by the system in ways that are really problematic, you see police and prosecutors saying, this is not a child. This is a grown adult who needs to be held responsible as a grown adult, notwithstanding their age, and that this is not a victim because this is something they wanted to do even though by definition they are being trafficked. As an example of this is the case of Centoya Brown Long, who, when she was 15, she killed Johnny Allen, who was 43. Now, this case was kind of well-publicized. At the age of 16, then, she was tried as an adult and sentenced to life in prison. Talk about that case, please, Lee Goodmark. Centoya Brown was being trafficked by her intimate partner, and she picked up a man named Johnny Allen, who was, as you said, significantly older than her. Mr. Allen took her back to his place where he made it clear that he had guns. She was certain that he was going to hurt her or kill her, and she shot him in self-defense and ran away. And she was 16, I believe, at the time that she was tried as an adult, sentenced to life in prison. And throughout that process, Prosecutors and police refused to see her victimization in any way, refused to talk about her as a child who had been trafficked by her partner, but rather talked about her as a grown woman who was engaged in volitional sex work and who killed Mr. Allen in order to steal his truck. And one of the interesting things about Centoya Brown's case is that during her incarceration, she actually was in a prison college program being taught by a prosecutor who had been involved in the appeal of her case. And when the prosecutor met her during that class, did not realize who she was until much later. And then when he did, thought and said to her, I don't recognize you as the person who was involved in this case. And her response to that was, nobody was particularly interested in what happened to me or who I was as a person. They had the story. That was the story that they wanted to tell. And again, as a Black woman, not conferred victimization status, not conferred childhood status, but papered in all of these ways that made it very easy for the system to say, you're an adult, 
volitionally involved in sex work who killed someone not out of fear, but with robbery as a motive, and you have to be punished. It's hard for me to believe in some of these cases where it just seems so clear that these girls and women are victims They've been traumatized. And particularly in the case of 15, 16-year-olds, their brains haven't even fully formed yet. Is it overwork on the part of the prosecution offices or lack of defense attorney capabilities? How can this happen time after time after time? And compassion and true appreciation of trauma and the processes of victimization. How does this happen over and over? The system is doing what it is set up to do. The criminal legal system is meant to police and punish the behavior of people who fail to conform to very strict norms around victimization, around behavior, around perceptions of behavior, and honestly, around blackness, for want of a a better way to put it. This system grew out of the enslavement of black people. It is not surprising that it continues to operate in the way that it does. It is doing, as kind of Paul Butler and others have said, the system is doing exactly what it was meant to do. And it does that by requiring people to fit into a very narrow stereotype of victimization in order to be recognized as victims. And so that's why the book is called Imperfect Victims, because there is this perfect victim stereotype that says if you are white, straight, cisgender, heterosexual, meek, weak, passive, then we might be willing to recognize you as a victim, but only might, because if you have mental health issues, if you've used substances, if you're not the right kind of white, if you're a rough woman, if you are angry or aggressive or loud or profane or any of the things that kind of deviate from that meek and weak stereotype, we're not going to recognize you as a victim. You are not legible to us as a victim. And almost no one can conform to that stereotype, even Nikki Adamondo, who I referred to earlier. People called her kind of the poster child for being able to make an argument that she acted in self-defense. And even she couldn't do that because she wasn't the right kind of white. She had been abused in other relationships that made her suspect. And prosecutors took her victimization and turned it against her. That's the system doing what the system does. And that's why the book ultimately argues for abolition, because reforming this system is not going to change the fact that it is a system designed to police behavior that it sees as nonconforming and that almost no one can conform. You quote, I think it's somebody in Louisiana, a sheriff or prosecutor down there, and I'm paraphrasing. Once there's a loophole for one woman to kill an abusive spouse, pretty soon you've got dozens of dead husbands. I think that that addresses an unspoken, usually, fear of controlling women and keeping them submissive. And anyone who resists in a way that results in harms to men or death to men, they're going to get the book thrown at them because of that fear. I think that's absolutely right. And comments like that are surprisingly common. 
I don't know if you remember Andy Rooney from 60 Minutes made a comment just like that. The prosecutor who prosecuted Francine Hughes from the movie The Burning Bed made a comment just like that. The prosecutor that you're referring to, again, you hear it over and over again. There's this real fear that if we acknowledge the extent of violence against women and trans and gender nonconforming people, if we admit that people are defending themselves, then we will open the floodgates to allowing mass murder of everyone who's violating someone else. I think it shows in a way the understanding of just how widespread gender-based violence truly is and what would happen if we took these claims seriously. Culturally, we're not that far distant in time since it was accepted for husbands to rape their wives and not be considered rape. There's even members of our current Supreme Court who quote authorities that basically say that from common law and that people didn't get involved if a husband was beating a wife or something. That's a, you know, a personal matter. So it's hard to assess how much of this is lag time culturally. But as we mentioned earlier, we are experiencing a, a backlash period to whatever progress we have made as a culture, not just to gender-based violence, but progressive efforts in general. The other piece of that is the way that criminalization allows us to feel like we've done something without solving the problem in any real way. And so the response to you would be, but we've passed all these laws. You know, we've done rape reform and we've done intimate partner violence reform and we've passed all these laws. So we have done something. It just doesn't happen to be working in any kind of meaningful way. That's a good segue into the final part of your title to your book, Imperfect Victims, Criminalized Survivors and the Promise of Abolition Feminism. There have been particularly black women analysts, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, among others, who have been talking about prison abolition. And it scares the bejesus out of people because we have a hard time imagining how to protect society without having prisons. And you have had your own growth into that. You've, you've tried to consider reforms and you find them lacking. So explain to our listeners your thinking and how it has grown. So as I said, when I started doing this work, I was a carceral feminist, as carceral as they come. Some people see that as an insult. I see it as a descriptor. I believed that the criminal legal system could intervene in ways that would stop gender-based violence. And I just don't believe that anymore. I don't believe it because I've done a deep dive into the research. And that's my second book is all about that. And I don't believe it because it doesn't serve the needs of my clients. But I will admit that the jump to abolition was a really difficult one for me, too. It requires a leap into the unknown. It's a leap of faith. And that is a hard thing for people to do. I have been lucky and grateful for the work of the people that you've talked about, Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Mariam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie and Beth Ritchie. And I would note that a lot of them come out of the anti-violence movement that they looked at the movement to end gender-based violence and said, we are relying in the state in ways that are deeply problematic and are never going to solve this problem. 
And it's worth always saying that women of color from the beginning of the effort to ramp up the criminal legal response to gender-based violence were saying, this is not a good idea. It is not going to work for us. It is not going to work for our communities. And the largely white women in power chose not to listen. And this is where we are now. In the end of my second book, say decriminalizing domestic violence is unlikely, which I still believe to be true, and probably unwise. And that was a punt because I could not yet see how it is that we could do this work without involving the criminal legal system. What changed for me was nine years of going into prisons regularly. And I should say that the prison that I am in on a regular basis is, as prisons go, not that bad. It looks like a rundown community college with razor wire. There are much worse places to be held. I am in contact constantly with a woman who's being held in absolutely inhumane conditions in Texas. That's not what I was seeing. But even what I was seeing was enough for me to say, no one should live like this. No one should be caged. That's not an appropriate societal response to any kind of harm. It's not solving the problem. In fact, it's making the problem worse. And it's not a way that I can, in good conscience, continue to advocate. And so what that meant was really immersing myself in the abolitionist literature and trying to understand how that made sense in the context of the work that I was doing. And critical resistance gave me a really helpful framework for doing that. Critical Resistance, which is a prison abolitionist organization and Insight Women of Color Against Violence, have been talking about the ways that the anti-violence movement relies on carceral solutions for a really long time. And Critical Resistance has articulated a framework for understanding the difference between reformist reforms and non-reformist reforms. Reformist reforms are those things that tinker around the edges of the criminal legal system but don't challenge its legitimacy and essentially leave it intact. And non-reformist reforms are those things that start to pare back to do away with the power of the criminal legal system to dismantle it, even if not in one fell swoop, which I don't think anyone actually thinks is going to happen, little by little in ways so that while we are building all of the things we need in a world that embraces abolition, we are also decreasing the reach of the carceral system. So what I try to do at the end of the book is to offer the non-reformist reforms that could really benefit criminalized survivors of violence as we are working towards abolition. You don't have to be ready to go to abolition today to do really, really valuable work in dismantling this system that is keeping survivors of violence criminalized. There are all kinds of things that we can do along the way there. Well, let's give some examples of some of the non-reformist reforms. You can get rid of mandatory arrest laws, which are responsible for the increased arrest of women and girls, I should say, as well. You can get rid of cash bail. The role of cash bail in holding women and particularly criminalized survivors is not something that we talk about all the time, but it's a really important thing that women are willing to take pleas when they can't make bail. And they take pleas to things that either they didn't do, they might have good defenses for so that they can get home to kids, so that they don't lose employment. Women take pleas all the time, and cash bail is part of what forces that. You can get rid of long mandatory minimum sentences that force people again into a position where they need to plead and keep people incarcerated for ridiculous amounts of time. Many of my clients are serving long mandatory minimum sentences unnecessarily. You can get rid of provisions that don't allow people to talk about the victimization that they have experienced in parole or in commutation proceedings. 
And you can include provisions that allow people to talk about those issues explicitly. There's second look legislation that allows for judges to go back and reconsider long sentences based on someone's performance during the time that they've been incarcerated. There are specific laws that allow you to factor intimate partner violence and other forms of violence into decisions when that was not previously available to someone. Laws like New York's Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. We can build up participatory defense and survivor defense campaigns so that we can be aware when prosecutors are taking these kinds of cases forward and get engaged. That's what happened in the case of Tracy McCarter in New York, who was being prosecuted for the murder of her husband after she defended herself with a knife. And the district attorney in Manhattan said publicly prior to his election, I stand with Tracy. We should not be prosecuting victims of violence. But when he assumed office, did not drop those charges. And it was only because she had an active survivor campaign pressuring him to drop those charges that ultimately two years after he initially took office were those charges against her dropped. And then we've got to do the building work of abolition. We have to give people the things that they need to survive and thrive. But that's not a a non-reformist reform. That's kind of the ultimate reform. In your section on abolition feminism, you give some examples beyond what you've just said. And we trash Texas quite a bit, but you write that the Texas Supreme Court has clarified that those younger than 14 cannot be held criminally liable for prostitution. So let's hear it for Texas Supreme Court, at least in this case. I mean, it's about the least they could do. It it, it truly is about the least they could do, but they did do it and other states have not. So yes, let's hear it for Texas in that case. Uh, Well, I'm looking for the positive here. You talk quite a bit about, and we haven't at all in this discussion that we've had, Lee Goodmark, about the LGBTQ community's overrepresentation in this survivor of gender-based violence criminalization. Would you share some of that with us now, please? Absolutely. Same kinds of cases, same kinds of outcomes. And one case that I talk about a little bit is the case of Kai Peterson. Kai is a trans man who was walking home along a dark road one night and was assaulted, sexually assaulted, raped. And that was not the first time that Kai had been raped. And so Kai had been carrying something to protect himself and he defended himself in the case of that rape and was absolutely not legible to anyone as a victim of violence. Even though rape of trans people, both men and women, is absolutely rampant. And prosecutors rejected the idea that Kai could be a victim in any kind of meaningful way. They painted him as the aggressor in that case, and Kai served a significant period of incarceration. You also see particularly LGBTQ kids and trans kids especially caught up uh, for trafficking when they're doing survival sex work. And again, because they don't fit the perfect victim stereotypes, they're not legible to police or prosecutors as victims. The incarceration, whether it's pre-trial or post-trial, of transgender people being placed in prisons or jails not appropriate to their gender, that happens, right? It's the norm. It happens in most places. It's the rare place that allows people to be housed in carceral facilities that are consistent with their gender identity. And that's unbelievably destructive and unbelievably harmful, particularly for trans women who are just victimized in every possible kind of way. 
in carceral settings. They are used to subdue folks who are incarcerated. They are put in segregation when they ask for protection from rape and sexual assault. They are left in solitary confinement for long periods of time. They are denied gender-affirming health care, gender-affirming clothing, other things that they need. The list just goes on and on and on. The plight of particularly trans women and particularly trans women of color in prisons is absolutely heartbreaking. That brings us full circle to the politics of this as what we began with in trying to change the harms that you have elucidated so well in your book, Imperfect Victims. Given the politics that we are dealing with now, whether it's changing funding to more useful and beneficial ways in abolition, as as you put it, or accepting gender differences, whether it's transsexuals or not, all of this stuff is experiencing extreme reactionary politics now. And it's being used to consolidate power at the state level, the local level, and at the federal level. So final words about trying to affect change under these circumstances. I tell my students all the time that I only steal from the best. And so in this case, I'm stealing from Dr. King. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It bends really slowly. It bends imperceptibly at some times. But I am heartened in some ways by the attention that is being paid right now to criminalize survivors. I am hopeful that given the public interest in this topic, that we might be able to make change. Again, slowly, painstakingly, not the kind of change that I'd hope for, not the kind of change I'd want to see all at once. And Some of that change is contested. So, for example, New York's Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act is a way to get courts to consider experiences of domestic violence that they didn't consider at the time of sentencing. And some would argue that all that does, again, is tinker around the edges of the criminal legal system. From my perspective, it's a way to get people out. And as a lawyer who does this work on a day-to-day basis, as long as there are people stuck in this horrible trauma-inducing system, my job is to get them out. And we've been able to do that. I'm proud of the work that we've done in the clinic, but is there a ton more work to do? Absolutely. And in the current climate where it's a problem even apparently to have a drag show, the idea that we're going to start treating transgender incarcerated folks more humanely seems kind of a a lifetime away. What we do is, and I'm again stealing from Mariam Kaba, you stay in your lane and you do the work that you can do. And with all of us pushing together, I have to believe that we can make meaningful change, but I'm not blinded to how difficult that will be, particularly in the current climate. There are those who say that in addition to being painful, this reactionary energy that we've been talking about, it's telling and indicates that the efforts over the decades towards justice, towards civil and human rights and expressions of things like survivors protecting themselves, that the successes of those is what's bringing up the reactionary now and that that's an indication of success in a difficult to consider way. I think that's probably true. And I think it's probably true in the case of gender-based violence too. The argument was that you needed to treat domestic violence as a crime like any other crime. And the response to that was, okay, you want to be treated as a crime like any other crime? Well, then we will enforce that against women and men equally. And I'm 
binarying it for a reason, what the criminologist Mita Chesney Lin calls the story of vengeful equity. And so, yeah, two steps forward, one step back, for sure, that's part of what's happening here. But it doesn't mean that we stop walking. I think there will always be reaction to progressive social change in a country like ours. But that doesn't mean we stop trying. Get involved. There are so many things that you can do to improve the lives of criminalized survivors. Watch legislation. Look and see if your jurisdiction is trying to get rid of felony murder, for example, another great thing that we could do and something California has already done. Get involved in survivor defense campaigns. Be aware of the ways that your system is working against criminalized survivors and get involved in doing something about it. Lee Goodmark, thank you so much for your work over decades and for this most recent book, Imperfect Victims, Criminal survivors and the promise of abolition feminism and for joining us on forthright radio we very much appreciate it thank you so much for having me you have just heard a conversation with university of maryland law professor lee goodmark about her latest book imperfect victims criminalized survivors and the promise of abolition feminism published last month by the university of california press part of their gender and justice series one of my revolutionary heroes judy human left this mortal plane on march 4th 2023 at the age of 75 but her work lives on she is considered the mother of the disabled rights movement. I knew of her work for disability rights since the 1970s, and I always mistakenly thought that human was not her given name, but one she chose to further her radical work of insisting that differently abled people were fully human and deserved respect and rights, including access to live their lives fully and to contribute to society. But no, human actually was her family name, just one of life's truth is greater than fiction machinations to ensure we pay attention and to accentuate the point. A couple of years ago, the documentary Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, was released and began winning awards. It chronicles a group of disabled kids from 1971, including Judy Human, who came together at a summer camp, Camp Jened, run by self-described hippies near Woodstock, New York, which they referred to affectionately as Crip Camp. For most of them, it was their first experience of living as regular teenagers. The film is a raunchy, inspiring, and uplifting chronicle of the effective revolutionary work Judy Human and her generation did, and it follows them as they changed our world for the better, despite seemingly overwhelming odds. So especially as we face this reactionary backlash to social justice progress that has been accomplished over the the past 60 years or so, this film, Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, is a welcome reminder of what can be accomplished with joyful solidarity, democratic process, and determination. It can be screened on Netflix. Watch it if you can. The name of the film may be a bit of a turnoff, but I assure you, it's a celebration of the triumph of the human spirit over ignorance, negligence, and injustice. It is, in fact, an upper. Judy Human, presente. We're living in an era of accelerating cognitive dissonance, outright hypocrisy, and never-ending demonstrable lies. 
A powerful segment of the political class is in hyperdrive, spewing rhetoric about freedom, parental rights, and getting government off our backs, while simultaneously executing a well-funded, highly coordinated interstate agenda to reverse decades of grassroots work toward social justice and expanding human rights, not to mention free expression, via legislation to criminalize teaching, eliminate parental rights in medical decisions to support their children's gender realities, etc. This in the name of protecting children from, quote, irreparable harm, end of that quote, when in fact the number one cause of children's harm in the United States is gunfire, about which precious little is being done. Humanity is grappling with profound, even existential changes on a global scale. And those invested in the power structure that brought us to this crisis point resort to tried and true methods to maintain and increase their power. Tom Hartman reminds us, quote, Fascists always start by declaring themselves the victims of others. Victimhood is essential to the fascist worldview. It's at its core. And in a recent essay titled, What Will Happen to Everyone Who Is Not White, Straight, and Male If We Don't Speak Out, the link of which I'll post on the forthright media website, and from which I quote, A year before Nazis began attacking union leaders and socialists, a full five years before attacking Jewish-owned stores on Kristallnacht, the Nazis came for the trans people at the Institute for Sexual Research in Berlin. In 1930, the Institute had pioneered the first gender-affirming surgery in modern Europe. Its director, Magnus Hirschfeld, had compiled the largest library of books and scientific papers on the LGBTQ spectrum in the world. Being gay, lesbian, or trans was widely tolerated in Germany, at least in the big cities, when Hitler came to power on January 30, 1933, and the German queer community was his first explicit target. Within weeks, the Nazis began a campaign to demonize queer people with especially vitriolic attacks on trans people across German media. German states put into law bans on gender-affirming care, drag shows, and any sort of public display of deviance. Books and magazines telling stories of gay men and lesbians were removed from schools and libraries. A mere five months after Hitler came to power, on May 6, 1933, Nazis showed up at the Institute and hauled over 20,000 books and manuscripts about gender and sexuality out in the street to burn, creating a massive bonfire. It was the first major Nazi book burning. It wouldn't be the last. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. And you'll also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media.